You're listening to The Way Home with Daniel Darling, a proud member of the Venom Audio Network. Well, hello and welcome everyone back to The Way Home Podcast. This is Dan Darling, your host. I'm so glad that you're joining me today. Uh, We have a great guest lined up for you. But before we get to that, I just want to tell you about a few things uh, on the horizon that you might be interested in. Uh, Number one, if you uh, would like to sign up for my newsletter, One Little Word, we'd love uh, for you to become part of that community. You can go to danieldarling.com and sign up for that. Uh, Also, uh, my books... My latest books are still out there. The Characters of Creation, published by Moody Press, is part of the character series, and it really talks through the first 11 chapters of Genesis and profiles some of the uh, more um, interesting characters in the scripture. And then my book, my Bible study from Lifeway on spiritual gifts, uh, which is available. This is just a made for uh, individual or group study. It's a Bible study that helps walk through what are the spiritual gifts, how should we think about them, how do we identify our own spiritual gifts, how do we live out our gifting and our callings in the context of the local church community. Uh, You can get that as well. That's available from Lifeway. You can go to uh, my website, danieldarling.com, and see links there, or you can buy those products on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, independent bookstores, wherever you buy books. We'd love for you to have those. Um, I'm coming to you live from the campus of... Texas Baptist College here at Southwestern Seminary. Would love for you to check out Texas Baptist College if you have a, um, a child that is looking to uh, pursue an undergraduate degree. We have de- really great programs in humanities and our cultural studies and Christian studies, a really, really robust program. And I am leading what's called uh, the Faith and Culture Concentration. So if uh, you or your children or someone you know is interested in kind of getting equipped for uh, kind of public theology, public engagement, whether it's advocacy work or working uh, sort of, you know, on the Hill or in Congress or even working for an advocacy organization, uh, this would be a great opportunity for you. So you can check it out at texasbaptistcollege.com. Okay. Today's guest is Dr. Mark Talbot, who has a PhD from the University of Pennsylvania. He's a longtime associate professor of philosophy at Wheaton College. Uh, He's host of a popular podcast called When the Stars Disappear. But more importantly, he is the author of this multi-volume series on a theology of suffering. And uh, this is a really comprehensive look at suffering in the scriptures. How should we think about it? And Mark isn't writing from just sort of an academic mindset. He's actually writing from his own personal experience, uh, having suffered um, an accident and he is uh, partially paralyzed and has had to endure some great suffering uh, as a result of that. Uh, We're going to talk about the latest in this volume. It's called Give Me Understanding That I May Live situating our suffering within God's redemptive plan. I've never really seen a book quite like this, but it's really fascinating where he kind of walks through the sort of uh, God's redemptive plan, the redemptive timeline, salvation history, and situates suffering, our suffering in that context. It's a really, really uh, good look. We had a great conversation. He's a great guest, and I know that this you will enjoy this. Whether you're enduring suffering right now or you are trying to comfort someone who's suffering, this will be a podcast that will help you. So please pull up a chair and tune in 
to the conversation with Dr. Mark Talbot. Dr. Talbot, thanks for joining me today. It's really good to join you, Dan. From Chicago. Yes. I presume the weather's a little bit cooler there than it is here in Texas, but it is. It's it's actually quite pleasant. Yeah. That that Chicago summer weather's pretty nice. So I wanted to have you on because you are in the midst of a I think a really important project. And it's kind of been a life's work, uh, a four volume series on suffering which is an ambitious project. So I know there's a lot of personal story behind some of what has motivated you to do this, but uh, talk a little bit about the project you're working on and why you think it's so important. The overall general title for the four volumes is Suffering in the Christian Life. Hmm. And um, the first volume is actually dealing with people who are suffering and some sort of what I call profound suffering, really serious suffering. So it's meant to be first aid for them. It's called When the Stars Disappear. And the picture that I had there, Dan, was of Acts 27 and 28, when Paul was sailing across the Mediterranean Sea and uh, they encountered a storm that meant that for two weeks they couldn't see the sun, moon, or stars. It meant they didn't have any way to navigate. They were afraid that they were going to um, uh, end up being driven onto this sandbar in the middle, middle of the Mediterranean and um, that it would kill them. Um, God appeared to Paul in a dream, told him they'd all be safe if they all stayed on board. Uh, he ended up uh, being delivered to Rome, everyone was safe, and of course that gave him the opportunity to witness to Caesar. So the first book has that title, When the Stars Disappear, Help and Hope from Stories of Suffering in Scripture, because what I'm trying to do there is to speak to people who are in the midst of really awful suffering where they feel as if they don't know how to move forward. They may feel as if they've lost all their orientation in life. They may feel that they're not sure that God exists or that he's good anymore. The thing that started all of that, Dan, was that I had a student who committed suicide. And I had been talking to his parents because he had been pretty seriously depressed. And uh, he ended up committing suicide, and I realized afterwards that I really needed to write a series that would help Christians to understand what God was doing, how he was still in the midst of the most awful things that they could go through. Mm. That book deals particularly with uh, the book of Ruth, with the book of Job, and the book of Jeremiah, because I want to make clear that Christians um, what Christians quite often aren't, aren't clear about, and that's that there's a great deal of suffering in the Bible. And I think quite often when we start to suffer, particularly in the West, we just assume that there's not going to be much in the Bible uh, that's going to be important for us to know. But of course, when you read the story of Ruth and you read about Naomi losing her husband and her two sons in a foreign land, her coming back to, um, uh, to Bethlehem, um, when she when she is uh, when she comes into Bethlehem, the women of Bethlehem ask, "Is this Naomi?" It's not clear from the from the Hebrew 
um, uh, constructions, whether or not that was a question, meaning that they didn't recognize her because her grief was so great, or if they did recognize her and it was just kind of the surprise, well, we're really glad to see you. But what she said was, don't call me Naomi, which means pleasant. Call me Mara, which means bitter. She wanted a permanent name change because she felt that her life could never again be good. Of course, with Job, Job had the same sort of despair. In the seventh chapter of Job, he says, my eye will never again see good. Jeremiah, in the 20th chapter of his book, The Longest in the Bible, has just uh, been released from being on the rack. He's been tortured. His reaction is to tell God that God had deceived him and that he wanted nothing to do with the calling that God had given him. I write about their stories up to the depth of their suffering in chapter 2 in order and, and stop there so that Christians realize Scripture knows all about profound suffering. Then I have an intervening chapter, chapter three, on breathing lessons from the Psalms, how to breathe when we are grieving and we're lamenting. In the fourth chapter, I pick back up on their stories again. And I show that, in fact, Naomi, at the end of her life, as she has this little baby placed in her hands that is the product of the marriage of Ruth and Boaz, uh, that uh, that she knows joy again. She again has a life that is full of pleasantness. Job, of course, at the end of his book, God uh, restores him to a life of great wealth and good overall. Jeremiah never happens. With Jeremiah, in chapter 21, there's another pasher. There was a pasher in 20 who tortured him. In 21, there's another pasher, but it's 15 years later, the remainder of the book of Jeremiah is non-chronological. But what it's meant to show us is that despite the fact that life never got significantly better for Jeremiah, that the Lord restored his faith and that he was a faithful witness to the end. So that first book is trying to say to people, hang on. Endure. This is all God really requires of us, is that we endure. And there's an epilogue where I deal with the endurance of Abraham and Moses and other Old Testament saints mm -hmm. in Hebrews 11, and then say, we must endure too. The second book, which is, give me understanding that I may live. That's uh, a verse in Psalm 119, verse 144. The subtitle of that is Situating Our Suffering Within God's Redemptive Plan. It's meant to move from our personal stories, the kinds of stories that we were talking about in the first book, where people are orienting themselves to their lives. It moves from personal stories to the general story of what God is doing overall in the world. And here's my claim, Dan. My claim is that in order for us to be able to live lives that have any significant meaning to them, we need both a personal story and we need a general story, a general story which tells us what the general meaning of human life is. And for Christians, it's awfully important to know the full general story, which has four chapters, creation, rebellion, 
redemption, and consummation. We need to know that story so that our personal stories, the trajectory of our personal stories, we can insert into the line of God's general story in such a way that we are living the lives that he wants us to live. And so that's dealing with the general story, and it contrasts it with the other main kind of general story in our society, which is a naturalistic story. And the fact that the naturalistic story says there's no God, we have only come about because uh, it was a chance, um, a collocation of molecules finally forming human beings. Uh, finally, all the useful energy in the universe will run down. Uh, there will be nothing left. There will be no persons. There will be nothing of value. Uh, that is a really, really despairing story. And so I contrast the Christian story with that story. The mm. third story is going to deal with how important language is to us. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And, of course, God created by means of language. Let there be light. So, first of all, I talk about just how important language is to us uh, every day. In the way that, for instance, in Deuteronomy, God charges the Israelites with uh, early in the morning, at noon, at night, while they're along the way, while they're at home, speak to their children about what God has done for them. There's supposed to be this constant dialogue going. I spend a chapter dealing with how important language is. The second chapter, all of these books have just four chapters each. The second chapter argues that scripture needs to become what I call our primary language. The best illustration of that, Dan, in all of uh, Christian history, so far as I know, is Augustine's Confessions, mm. where he has so digested God's language from Scripture that he just automatically uses it as he talks to God in that prayer, which is what mm -hmm. the whole Confessions is. I want to say the Scripture needs to become our primary language, meaning that we think in the biblical categories, that they are the categories in which we uh, we evaluate everything. All of our thinking and feeling and desiring and doing needs to fit within those categories. Then there are two chapters on providence. And one of the claims there is that because God created by means of language, that his language is more primary than history that history is the result of his language. And as a result, exactly what God has ordained to happen will happen. That doesn't mean that we don't have real choices. The second book makes clear that Adam and Eve made a real choice not to obey God, not to love him as he was asking them to do. We have real choices, but somehow our choices and God's ordination of some uh, of everything go together in a certain kind of way. So there's going to be two chapters in Providence. The final volume is uh, going to be called All the Good We Have in Christ. And it is on faith, hope, and love, and finally on the eschaton, what we will share with Christ forever after he comes back. Hmm. That's really fascinating. And I, as I'm listening to you talk about this, this has to be one of the few, if not the only, I want to say a theology of suffering, because I think others have written that. But in terms of a four-volume set, a, a really in-depth 
theology of suffering has to be one of the first of its kind, at least in the modern era, right? Is, is there an analog to something like this in history that you've seen? Not that I know. Dan Block said that he thought that this was the most thorough uh, attempt to understand suffering that he's seen. Um, I, I don't know if, if ultimately that will be that or not. One of my initially it was going to be one volume, but what struck me was we were going to end up with a volume that was over a thousand pages long. And if people are suffering, you don't want to hand them a book stop like that. And so right. I went to Crossway and I said, Can we split it in half? And they said, Sure. And the idea would be that the first four chapters that are in the first book would be there, and then the second four chapters that are in the second book would be in the first half. But I thought over the weekend after that, I thought, No, no, that's still too much text for people. So I went back to him and I said, can we split it into four parts? The first volume is only 144 pages long, and the text is under 100 pages. And the mm. reason is uh, I'm trying to write simply and clearly enough, and yet responsibly as somebody who teaches philosophy. I'm trying to write simply and clearly enough that anyone of any age, if they're serious enough about it, can understand their suffering in the light of the suffering of Naomi and Job and Jeremiah. And mm -hmm. uh, in fact, one of my colleagues down at the college has been urging me to write a children's book that covers just that first volume because she said, Mark, years ago you gave me some of this stuff to work with. My family went through a really hard time. I translated this stuff into uh, more or less a children's book for my, for my children and it helped them immensely. So what I'm trying to do is I'm, I'm trying to give people kind of bite-sized pieces that they can deal with. In each of the books, there are lots of endnotes which fill in the picture from the main text. The main text is, I suggest people read just the text the first time through. There are lots of scripture references in the main text. I suggest the second time through, they also read the scripture references. And maybe around the third time, they read some of the end notes. The second volume is 250 pages. And so it's longer and more detailed, but I don't think it's much more difficult to read. And, and once again, my idea is all of us as Christians, no matter what our age, no matter what our educational accomplishments, we need to know this story well in order for us to be the people that God calls us to be. So I'm working really hard to try to do that. Well, I, I appreciate that. And, you know, to put suffering in a couple of different contexts, I think the second volume that we're talking about today uh, really, I think, puts it in a, in a kind of a context of big, a biblical theology of suffering to where uh, people can understand how, what is, how does a storyline of Scripture speak to our suffering? Uh, this one's called Give Me Understanding That I Might Live, Situating Our Suffering Within God's Redemptive Plan. It's a great book. We'll have links to it in our show notes. Encourage you to get the whole the whole series of volumes as as uh, Dr. Telwick continues to write them. But talk about suffering in the context of God's redemptive plan, in the context of biblical theology. I, I think we don't often think of it in those terms. Uh, but it would it would strike me it's not easier, but it's 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 probably well maybe it is easier to understand suffering when you understand kind of the plot line of Scripture, not only how we got here but where we're going. Yes, yes. I think uh, you, uh, one of your friends is K.J. Johnson. Yes. K.J. just wrote a review on Amazon, and he mentioned that when he was uh, in the service that one of his uh, superiors said to him, look at there are two ways 
that you can get a people uh, get people to know what time it is. One is you tell them what time it is. The other is that you tell them how to build a watch. And what he said is Mark has taught us how to build a watch here, where we get to see from the beginning of creation on through the rebellion, on through redemption, on through to consummation, exactly what God is doing at each of these stages in such a way that we really can understand where suffering comes in and what it means. And that's that's very much what you're talking about, Dan. That's what he um, uh, thinks is happening. So, in fact, you're right. One of the things that I think it's tremendously important for Christians to understand is that God did not create a world with human suffering. God did not create a world with human suffering. He created a world, and we, he created it ex nihilo, as it's put in the Latin, in other words, from nothing, a world that was pristine. And, and the world had no human suffering. It wasn't until our first parents rebelled against God's command that they not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that, in fact, suffering came into the world. And so what we need to do is to say to people that when they are suffering really significantly and their reaction is, this isn't the way that it should be, you're right. This isn't the way that God means it to be. Karen Jobes, who taught at Wheaton for several years, mm -hmm. wrote a great commentary on First Peter. And she mentions just right off the bat in that commentary that suffering, while it is normal in our world, is not natural mm. to the world that it's something that we have brought into the world. And so you're right. What I'm trying to do is I'm trying to develop a theology of suffering. Among the things that I point out is that after our first parents ate of the forbidden tree, they immediately were distrustful of each other. It seems just to have been an inevitable consequence. Uh, they, they, um, uh, it doesn't say quite that they felt shame, but that seems to be what happened. They covered themselves up, covered up the private, their private parts. When they heard God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, they immediately head in, um, uh, hid in the trees. God redemptively calls out to Adam, Adam, uh, why are you hiding in the trees? Did you eat of the tree that I told you not to eat of? And Adam says, yes. And God then adds extra suffering. This is really interesting, Dan. In chapter 3, from verses 14 through 19, we find that God increased the suffering in the world over and above the shame that mm. Adam and Eve felt together and that they felt before God. Um he increased the suffering. And so there are dooms that are pronounced on the serpent and on Eve and on Adam. The doom on the serpent, since the serpent was the one who tempted Eve to eat of the tree, uh, is that he's going to crawl on his belly on the ground for the rest of uh, his days, that he's going to eat dust just the way that it's put, and that the woman, and it doesn't necessarily mean Eve, but it means some woman in the line of Eve is going to give birth to a son who will, in fact, crush the serpent's head as the serpent uh, strikes at his heel, which is, of course, what's known as the Protevangelium. It's the first hint or foreshadow of the gospel of our Lord coming into the world. With the woman... Of course, she now is going to suffer much in childbirth. 
She's never going to have a marriage that's perfect because if she did, she probably would forget about God. And so there's always going to be a bit of friction in our marriages. For the man, the man is going to find that uh, extracting a living for his family from the ground is going to wear him out and that uh, he will know this pain of working every day in order to produce um, uh, an adequate living. And he will realize that this pain is, in fact, foreshadowing the fact that at some point he's going to be so worn out that he's going to die and he will return to the dust from which God made him. And so you get that picture And then the Old Testament helps us in any number of ways to understand the kinds of suffering that are part of our lives now uh, and that are inevitable parts of our lives now. We are all going to suffer the same degree. Some of us suffer a fair amount. Some of us suffer less. Mm -hmm. But we can understand from a book like Ecclesiastes why there's that kind of variation. So the Old Testament gives us that. We get to... The New Testament, and of course, God began redemption when He announced the Protoevangelium to Adam and Eve, who believed Him and mm-hmm. started to call on the Lord. But He continued when He called Abraham. Abraham, I want you to start walking. I'll tell you when to stop. At some point, the place where you stop is going to be the land that your people, my people, will live in. The Old Testament starts redemption, but it culminates when our Lord comes into the world. And Hmm. he does what Adam did not. He is the second Hmm. Adam. He is the one who does what Adam, uh, if he had done what was right, would have been perfectly obedient to God every step along the way. Our Lord was perfectly obedient to God Hmm. every step along the way, including death on a cross when he knew that all of God's wrath against sin would be poured out on him. And for someone who was the son of God, there could have been nothing more horrific than to think about that, which is why he begged God to take it away if he would, but said, not my will, but yours be done. So he goes through that just as the first sin was something that took place in space and time. So redemption needed to take place in space and time. And so our Lord died And, of course, the apostles lost all hope for three days because they thought, if this is the Messiah, he can't die, and especially on a cross. But then our Lord appeared bodily to Christian believers for 40 days and convinced them that, in fact, uh, the naturalistic story isn't true. The world is Mm -hmm. not such that it just grinds on mercilessly with no Mm -hmm. meaning. No, instead, behind the causal regularities in the world, God is working out this perfect plan where when our Lord returns, this heaven and earth will dissolve, and those who have put their faith in Christ's earthly work will be the bride of Christ and will spend eternity with him. Mm. What a beautiful picture of the Bible gives us. What a beautiful picture the gospel gives us for those who suffer. You have a, a bit of a personal stake in this because you, as, as, as uh, I think people will know as they read your books and know about you, this idea of suffering affects you personally. Yeah. Um, so talk about your own story in that, number one. And number two, one of the things I'd love you to, to talk about, you know, Paul talks in 
his letter to the Corinthians about the the sort of struggle of living the physical struggle of living life in a fallen world with bodies that um, betray us, if you will. Uh, so I'd love for you to talk as someone who has experienced great physical suffering, what the hope of the resurrection at the end of the age, and not just the resurrection of our souls. I think a lot of evangelicals yes. rightly believe that Christ is, has come to save our souls, and he has. But I don't think we talk enough about the resurrection of our bodies at the end of the age, that he's going to uh, renew and restore bodies that have been corrupted by sin and suffering and all that. So maybe put those two things together, yeah, if you yeah. will, your own personal story, but also yeah. the hope of the resurrection. Yeah, I became a Christian when I was 12. I was tempted by some sins that it was scaring me what could come of that. Uh, the fellow who wrote the little pamphlet, um, uh, My Heart, Christ's Home, was speaking in Bellingham, Washington at the Furs, uh, and it was a youth conference, and he offered an invitation, and I raised my hand. And for a year or so, I had a fellow who was in the Navy who uh, was uh, a member of the Navigators. And so this guy ended up, got he, he got me memorizing scripture and so on and so forth, and that was pretty good. But then I found that I just was not living the way that I knew I should. I was a wild kid, didn't get along well with my teachers or my peers at school. I had raced go-karts and quarter midgets. And so when I got to driving age, we lived north of Seattle. I was driving these back roads at breakneck speeds. And uh, I was pretty sure that I was not capable of this. My accident took place at the weekend after the my junior year. I was thinking of college and going to the University of Washington. I knew that I would get in, but I felt that I couldn't last a year because I wasn't disciplined. And so I found myself worried about that and worried about all the things that I was doing wrong. Well, a friend of mine and me had built a really, really big Tarzan-like rope swing. Um, it um, started up in a tree um, on a platform about 10 feet up in a tree. There was 8 or 10 feet of dirt down below that, and then there was a cliff, and it dropped off. And I'm not sure how fast it went, but you couldn't, you couldn't hang on to the rope with your hands. You had to sit on this round seat. Two of us were on it. I was on the seat. My friend was over me like this. When we came back the first time, I had a few times jumped on then, and three of us had ridden it. A young friend of mine had asked if he could do it. I said, sure. We came back. He waited till the rope hesitated before he jumped, and it meant that the rope was going away from him. So I caught him with one hand and still had hold of the rope with the other. We got out at the far end, and the only thing I thought was, I knew we were going to fall, and I thought if I fall on him, I'll kill him. And so I kind of shoved him one way. I got peeled off in such a way that my shoulders hit the ground first and my feet went over my head. Not sure how how far it was. I used to say 50 feet. I'm not sure it was that, but it was a long distance. I knew that he had to be hurt, and it was dusk. And so I held him down because he had lost all his breath until he had had started to calm down. And then I looked, and I saw that my legs were in this little crick, and I wasn't feeling anything. There was a fellow in 1963 who had the world pole vault record named Brian Sternberg. 
he pioneered fiberglass poles out in Seattle. He was, in fact, on the cover of Life magazine twice, once um, before an accident he had and once afterwards, if I recall. But in any case, Brian was practicing his landings for coming down off the pole vault, lost his orientation one day, and had broken his neck and was a full quadriplegic. So in other words, he didn't have finger movement or anything like that. I had met Brian, that was three years before my accident, and I knew immediately, because I hit my legs and I wasn't feeling anything other than a buzz, I knew immediately that I had done the same thing to myself that Brian had done just a little further down my back. Now here is the interesting thing. I, from the first moment, had a sense that this was the result of God's love for me. I think that's really unusual in a situation like that. But I think I felt so desperate about my life being out of control that more or less what happened was I knew immediately that all of the distractions of teenage life were going to have to drop away and I was going to have to concentrate on what was important. So I spent six months in the hospital, mm. took a couple of classes uh, for my final term in high school that spring. The next year, went to Seattle Pacific College. And when I went, Dave McKenna had just come as president, and Dave took a great interest in me. Frank Klein came as dean of religion the next year. He gave me hundreds of hours. Cliff McCrath came my junior year as dean of students and gave me many, many hours. What those guys did was they... They built me into a worthwhile person, if I can put it that mm. way. Um, I had students who, I, at the time, I walked with two canes usually. And the walking was so awkward that I think students just assumed that I would be concerned about them because of how bad my walking looked to them. And I was concerned about them. And those three guys taught me how to informally counsel students to help them. Um, Frank Klein did something that I now realize is just absolutely magnificent. I'd be waiting outside his office at the end of the day. He would get done with his last appointment. He'd walk into the outer office. I'd be struggling to my feet. He would say, oh, Mark, just a second. He'd walk in, dial his phone, say, Betty, Mark's here. I'm going to be late for dinner. And Frank just gave me hour upon hour upon hour to help me understand uh, what it meant to be a Christian and how to be concerned about others and all this sort of stuff. So that was, that was the start for me. Mm. And um, after college, I pretty quickly went to graduate school in philosophy because Dave McKenna and Frank Klein particularly realized that that uh, with my brains, that was probably something for me to do. I had, I had actually written a piece on the problem of suffering and published it in our student newspaper. The last line of it had been, the pain of infirmity cannot begin to touch the joy of closeness to him. So I, I, I got done with college, started to graduate school, um, it took a fair amount of time, took a little bit of time off to be a pastor, ended up back at the University of Pennsylvania to finally finish my PhD, and then went to Calvin College. And there, actually, I think I dealt with a more significant kind of suffering, Dan, than I ever did by means of just my accident. I couldn't finish my dissertation. I, I, I had 
hundreds, thousands of pages of notes, and I just couldn't pull the thing together. And I was on one year's at Calvin, and every year they'd renew the thing. Mm -hmm. um, but it was just harrowing, and I found that the only way that I could survive the days was to start each morning with at least an hour to an hour and a half, either in scripture or in really, really well scripturally based theology and prayer. That without that, I couldn't have the hope to get through my days. And so that was that was a harrowing time for me of really, really deep depression. I ended up coming to Wheaton College after that, finished the dissertation, and have been here ever since, and have dealt with lots of other things. But but in its own way, I would say that the most significant suffering for me uh, had to do with that depression that came out of not being able to finish my dissertation and knowing that if I didn't finish it, that I would not be able to teach. Um, finally, it was done, and then then that pressure was off. Mm. Mm. That's quite a story. Talk a little bit about the uh, as we wrap up this uh conversation, which has really been great. And I, I want to encourage folks to check out Dr. Mark Talbot, uh, his writings and his, his ongoing four volume set on theology of suffering. The one that we're talking about today is give me understanding that I might live situating our suffering within God's redemptive plan, suffering in the Christian life, volume two available from crossway. We'll have links to this. Um, as we close, I want you to, I want you to give, really two things. One, a word about how the resurrection of at the end of the age gives hope to those who suffer. And if you could close it out with a personal word, if you were talking to someone who is suffering right now, could be relational struggle, could be the loss of someone they love, or it could be as you have endured and others have endured intense physical suffering and pain. Could you give them a word of hope to close sure. it out? Sure. What we have and have good evidence for is that the fact that our Lord was bodily resurrected is a sign that God, in fact, is behind everything that happens in the world and that nothing can fall out of his hands. Uh, when he comes back, we will be resurrected with him bodily to have this new life. We will be the bride of Christ that will spend eternity with him. Now, exactly what that will mean for all of us with regard to suffering is that there won't be any suffering. But I'm not sure, Dan, I'm not sure that it means that there won't be some signs of the suffering we had, such as our Lord still had the marks on his wrists of the nails um, uh, that that held him to the cross and the hole in his side from the spear. That was part of his resurrected body. I am not sure since I've spent most of my life as a paraplegic, I'm not sure whether or not I'll be walking or not. Um, uh, but if I'm not, it won't matter. Uh, it won't be suffering. It will be instead... Uh, the kind of glory of the way that God has brought me to himself. My reason for mentioning that is that is that people who have Down syndrome children and so on and so forth say they wouldn't be our children if they were remarkably different. And I don't think they'll be remarkably different in the sense that, that they still um, 
they still will be recognizable as the children that they were, but there will be no suffering for them or for those who love them. So the resurrection is this wonderful hope of the fact that God will take all suffering away from his people. I that's, think it's going to depend on God. the stage that somebody is in for what I would say to a person. We need mm -hmm. to realize as Christians that when people first suffer profoundly, that the best thing we can do is keep our mouths shut and sit beside them and pray. Uh, Job's friends for the first seven days had it right. They sat beside him. They didn't say anything. It was only when they opened their mouths after seven days that it caused him so much grief. And I think quite often when people are in profound uh, grief or suffering, that the best thing we can do is just be a presence for them. We certainly do not want to tell them that there are lessons for them in these things and mm -hmm. then give them pat answers or say, oh, we know exactly what you're going through. We don't. At a later stage, uh, and, and if we prayed regularly, then what we can hope is that God will bring things along to the point that we can explain the whole the full Christian story and where their suffering fits within it and how God is going to redeem it. When my um, student committed suicide that starts the first mm. book, um, I was talking to his parents for a long time once a week. Uh, but initially it wasn't my place to offer them any answers whatsoever. But mm. as time went on, that was what led to this series of books that I was praying that they would get to the place that that they could finally say, okay, now we need to understand what God was doing in this and why he would allow this to happen. So different postures at different points with regard to the suffering that people are under. That's really good. Well, I, I want to thank you, Dr. Mark Talbot, both for your, your work and scholarship in this area that is going to be a comfort to so many. Uh, the area of suffering, of giving us hope of what the, the scripture talks about suffering, not to be surprised by it, but also the fact that we have hope at, uh, of the resurrection at the end of the age. But also, um, you know, for coming on and, and, and sharing your story here, I want to encourage folks to check out your your books and um, thankful that you're, you're teaching there at Wheaton and able to shape the next generation on uh, these important issues. So thank you for joining me today on the Way Home podcast. It's really been good to be with you, Dan. Thanks. Thank you for listening to this edition of the Way Home Podcast with Daniel Darling. For more information, you can visit danieldarling.com. If you do like this podcast, we encourage you to subscribe on iTunes or your favorite podcast catcher. We also encourage you to rate and review so others can know about the podcast. You can follow me at, at @dandarling on Twitter or go to my Facebook page, facebook.com slash Daniel M. Darling. Thank you for listening again to the Way Home Podcast. <music>